0: Good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 8 through 10. You know, it's evident as you read through the book of Hebrews that the Hebrew Christians are struggling under persecution. As a matter of fact, many of them are tempted to go back to Judaism. And some are just tempted to, honestly, just compromise and try to fit into society And the author of of Hebrews is really trying to exhort the Jewish Christians to remain faithful to Christ. And one of his primary goals is to encourage them to endure and, and to persevere. When he gets to Hebrews chapter 11, he does this by illustrating what faith looks like and what it will produce by giving us certain snapshots of men and women from the Old Testament. We might call them heroes of the faith. And we're going to zero in really on verses 8, 9, and 10 of this passage. We're going to look at the life of Abraham. More ink is is given to Abraham as being the man of faith than anybody in this passage. Obviously, Abraham has a life of faith that really instructs us as we think about this subject matter, encourages us to live a life of faith. Several things that we're going to find in this passage. One is that Abraham started really well, but we all know that the Christian life is really more like a marathon. It, it involves endurance and, and perseverance, and we need to finish well. He also brings us into the particular challenges of walking by faith. We all have them. We all know them. Uh, it's challenging to walk by faith, and, and he brings us into some of those struggles, and he helps us come up with a solution and helps us understand how to how to deal with the issues of faith by helping us understand the natures of faith the nature of faith and what it produces. Let's look at our passage here to get it in context. I'm going to read Hebrews 11:1 through 10. Here's God's word. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. And now our passage that we're focusing on. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You know, as I was writing the sermon, I was actually thinking about some journeys that I've had in the past, some trips that I've taken. Probably the uh, trip that has the most affection in my heart was a trip I took back in 1974 Which tells you how old I am. I was nine years old and um, Went with my family. My dad decided, you know, we're gonna travel across the United States We we didn't have a whole lot of money at that time So we were thinking, you know What does it look like to travel across the United States on a really small budget? He came up with the idea. It's like hey, let's use the station wagon the Dodge Monaco as a camper, let's turn that thing into a camper and go all the way to Arizona from South Alabama. So my parents put their heads together and they, they turned the Dodge Monaco into, into a camper. They, they, they pasted uh, Velcro all around the top of the car uh, on the inside and, and made some curtains so that they could, you know we would have privacy at night. By the way, I had a family. We have a family of five, my parents, me and my brother and sister. And... Um, so we loaded up the station wagon and we, we took off, we traveled across the United States. The idea was that we were gonna be gone for three weeks on this trip. And I quickly learned that this trip was all about endurance and perseverance. Uh, it was really interesting how they thought about you know, how we were gonna sleep and that kind of thing. Basically, if, you know, if you're younger, you may not know what a station wagon is, It's kind of the precursor to the SUV. But it was a long car, we put down all the seats in the back, and uh, threw all our junk in the back along with us kids. Uh, that was back when nobody cared about putting on, you know, seatbelts or anything like that. So threw those back in the back. And uh, we cut out a sheet of plywood and put it in the back, covered it with a, a piece of foam rubber. And, and we off to Arizona we went. At nighttime, every night, uh, my dad would pull everything out, put it on top of the car. We had a little, um, you know, carrier on top. And then he would take that sheet of plywood and slide it in over the tire wheel back in the back. And uh, my mom and dad would climb in under that. They slept under the, uh, under the, the table there, under the, the piece of wood, the plywood. My brother and sister slept up top. And because I was the oldest, I got the front seat. And, um, and we had a little oscillating fan. And so we would travel and do all our you know stuff. We'd pull into a KOA camp. We were always excited about KOA campgrounds. Because they had hookups, you know, you could plug into the electricity and run a little oscillating five-inch fan, and, uh, which didn't do a whole lot. You kind of found yourself wanting to follow the fan all night long. And in uh, sitting, sleeping in the front seat, you know, we had uh, those vinyl seats. When, man, when they get hot and you start to sweat and you, you roll over, it kind of takes three or four inches of your skin off. And uh, it was a great trip, though, honestly. It was, it was, a, really, it was a really good trip. And especially for us kids, but I tell you what, I've never seen my parents argue so much. Uh, I mean, just, you know, and, and one of the things I noticed as I reflected back over a couple of weeks of this, it really was a memorable trip. It's just that my, my mom and dad having this argument one day, it's like Walter, that was my dad's name. And by the way, she had named it uh, uh, the Walter Bago. So if you're familiar with camping, you know, the Winnie Bago, and you got Walter Bago. She was trying to convince my dad. It's like, listen, we, we need a break from vacation. Uh, we, need to, we need to check into a hotel. Can we just do that? And my dad's like, no, we're pressing on. Uh, we, we've got a budget. We decided this beforehand, Linda. Let's, you know, keep pushing on and, and that kind of thing. But my mom was, she was really ready to step out of the journey and stay in a hotel. And since it was a vacation, you can do that. But you know, in real life, In the journey that we're traveling on, that's not, uh, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. Life is often full of pain and full of suffering. It's full of broken relationships and failures, and there's all kinds of challenges to this life. And when life gets really tough, you can't just check out. Life is, uh, and so what ends up happening often is, is when we get in the midst of these circumstances, we begin to, to lose heart we begin to get discouraged and think about turning back and the writer of Hebrews here is really challenging and reminding us that as Christians we endure and persevere through these things now we don't just, you know, we don't just persevere by gutting it out for the Lord and just got it, just doing my duty for Jesus Christ no the Christian life as he says here is lived by faith a life of walking with the Lord and depending on his strength. Let's look at our passage here. I think there's three helpful observations that we can take away from Abraham's life regarding living a life of faith. Here's the first one. A life of faith means God's presence and promises are enough. We see that in verse verse 8. Abraham had a good start. When God called Abraham He obeyed and went, and in case you forgot about the call of of God, you can go back and look at it later in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through uh, 3. But God calls Abraham, and he tells him, Abraham, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your country, and I want you to go to the land that you'll inherit as a promise, and he accompanied this with all different kinds of promises. He promised it. He promised Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you a, a land Uh, I'm I'm going to bless you. Not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And I will be with you as you go along. And Abraham responds to God in obedience. Let me make two comments about obedience here that we we see there. Uh, First of all, obedience was evidence. Evidence of what? Obedience was evidence Of saving faith. Abraham was not saved by his obedience. It's important that we remember that. But his saving faith produced obedience. Obedience is always evidence in God's children of saving faith. Obviously, Abraham was bearing the fruit of obedience. But there's a second thing I want us to notice about Abraham's faith, and that is that it was immediate. He didn't haggle with God, he didn't, you know, try to figure this thing out or come up with reasons. Literally in the Hebrew, the idea is that as he is understanding God's call and what he's calling him to do, he is packing his bags. He had an immediate response to the Lord. But also in this passage, you see that Abraham, he starts well, but he's confronted with certain struggles that we have in living a life of faith and being obedient to the Lord. And there's two struggles that I want to point out here in this passage, two struggles that we all deal with. The first one is this, he didn't know where he was going. So God called him to go out, but he didn't give him any idea of the place that he was going to. He didn't give him anything tangible. Literally in verse eight says, he did not know where he was going. And one of the things that we struggle with as we seek to trust and obey the Lord is that, yes, we want to follow the Lord, but we also want to know where he's taking us. We want to know where he's going. We want to know the direction. So we're looking for security. We don't like to march into the unknown We long for the security of having all of our questions answered. And probably one of the most primary questions that Abraham and and Sarah are trying to answer is, what what is our future going to look like? What is this going to look like for me? What is this going to look like for my family? What is this going to look like for my job? What about the fruit of my labor? So there's all kinds of good questions that, that come out of this. So God did not tell Abraham. He called him to go to the promised land that he would inherit, but he didn't tell him where he was going. But not only that, he also didn't give him any details of the journey. He didn't describe to Abraham what the journey was gonna be like, and that really leads us to the second challenge to our faith, our struggle to walk by faith and obey God, and that's this. The weakness of our our flesh yearns for external confirmation the weakness of our flesh yearns for external um, confirmation. Look, we want to follow the Lord, but also we want the Lord to give us along the way tangible and external confirmation that we're on the right path, that God is really in this thing with us, and it doesn't always work out that way. The temptation is to walk or march down the path of God's will, and as long as the circumstances are going well, man, we're really feeling good about the the path that we're on. But as we're marching down the path of God's will and the circumstances go awry and they become difficult, at that point, often we stop, we hesitate, and we begin to question several things. We begin to question, what in the world am I doing? We also tend to Look at the circumstances often when we get in these situations and we begin to define God's will by the circumstances around us and also allow it to dictate our obedience to the Lord. Listen, if Abraham would have based his calling or his understanding of God's will on external confirmation— he probably would have turned back pretty quickly. Let me just remind you, and you have to go back and, and, and look at Genesis 12 all the way through 25 to look at Abraham's life after this call, what it was like. So God had called him, he had given him these promises. But you know how it is. As we start marching down the, the path of God's will, we, are, we also start constructing all kinds of expectations. I can't imagine what kind of expectations Abraham constructed on the Lord. But I do know this: when he got to the land, there was nobody there to greet him. When he got to his first town, the mayor didn't come out and give him to the key of the, the key of the to the city. It wasn't like you know God had written you know, in this in the sky and prepared the Canaanites for what was, what was coming or anything. There was no real estate agent to take him around and show him a home or show him where the best schools were or anything like that. And probably in the rearview, Mary had his family saying, you know, uh, Abraham, what in the world are you doing? Why are you leaving all the best of what we've got here in Ur to go to some land you don't even know where you're going? You can hear all the questions. But not only that, when he gets to the, to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, guess what? There were people there. <laughs> there were Canaanites, and they weren't necessarily you know, just glad to, to see him. Uh, not only that, he had, all these, he had a large entourage of, of family members and servants and herds and flocks and things like that. Guess what happened? Right after he got there, there was famine in the land. You can imagine what he's thinking to himself. How in the world am I going to feed all my flocks? Lord, you called me here. What are you doing? So he diverts and he goes to Egypt. Guess what he finds when he gets to Egypt? You remember what happens? Pharaoh tries to steal his wife. not going so well. So he heads back to the promised land. And, uh, and you know, for, for a while there, it seemed like, man, God was just prospering him and Lot, his nephew, and their flocks were growing. But then their family started having strife among each other and arguing. And finally, they decide to, to split up, and, uh, and Lot goes to the, to the cities. And he ends up in Sodom. And, and not long after that, lo and behold, one of the kings in that area, they capture his family, and Abraham has to pull all his people together and go out and rescue Lot. And then later on, God comes to him and tells him he's going to destroy Sodom. You know, it's like, you know, Abraham, you remember the, the passage. Was, what, if, what if there's just a few righteous men there? And, and anyway, God preserves Lot, but, but Lot loses his wife in the process. She turns into a pillar of salt. And in the midst of all this, Abraham and Sarah are, are really old, taking off on this journey, and they're trying to get pregnant and uh, see God's promise fulfilled, and they're having a problem with pregnancy. Listen, as you look at all the circumstances, there are even more that I've left out. As you look at all the circumstances, man, Abraham, by any account, humanly speaking, has plenty of reason to turn around and in most of our eyes just conclude, it's like, I don't know that God's really in this. You know, you can imagine what Sarah was saying to him behind closed doors. It's like, Abraham, are you sure you heard what the Lord had to say? Are you sure? Are you positive? So what do we often do when things go Not as we expected. Well, one of the things we do, we begin to doubt God. We also begin to question his faithfulness for us. We compare our circumstances to others, especially those who have better circumstances than us. We compromise, and, and eventually, we start justifying or edging on our obedience. We become disobedient in the process. So the question is, is how does Abraham, how does Abraham keep going, living a life of faith and obedience? By faith, God's presence and his promises were enough for Abraham. That was his secret. Abraham, just like all of us, I'm sure he wanted more from the Lord. Lord, I'd love to hear some of your you know, external circumstances. But, but you get the idea as you're, as you're reading through this that Abraham, whether he had more details or less details along the way, whether God gave him visible confirmation or didn't give him any confirmation at all, that God's presence and God's promises were enough to Abraham. It was satisfying. He was content with those and he walked by faith in the presence and the promises of the Lord. Let me give two applications here that I think might be helpful as we, we think about this. Number one, it is better to go into the unknown trusting God than to go into the known without trusting God. Think about that for a second. It's better to go into the unknown trusting God than to go into the known without trusting God. I, I'll give you a great example as you all know, my campus outreach background, we had, a, we had a student over here at Arkansas State as a football player who came to Christ many years ago. One of the most encouraging guys I've ever been around. His name is DeMario Davis. He actually plays for the New Orleans Saints now. Just a tremendous football player. But right after he came to Christ, I remember we were meeting, and he was just telling me how God had changed his life and how much he really wanted to grow. And he was telling me, man, I really want to go on the summer project where I can devote 10 weeks of my, my summer to growing in my relationship with Christ. And, and I said, you know, you might want to talk with your coaches, I know y'all have workouts and that kind of thing. So I'm trying to encourage him to, to, you know, be responsible to his football team and to think about some of that. And so he went to, you know, his football coach, he came back to me, he said, listen, I've been praying about this, everything in my life I've always done in athletically, I've always tried to find the best training possible. And now that I am a follower of Christ, how is it that I would settle for anything less? This is the best thing I know that I could possibly do, is to go and train and build a foundation in my relationship with Christ. I really feel like this is God's will. He went back to his coaches and told them he's going to the summer project. And the coach said, that's fine, uh, but when you get back, you won't have a starting position. Now, you have to know this about about DeMario. DeMario was one of the best football players in this conference. His sophomore year, he was first team uh, all conference. He was a really good player. as a linebacker. So he goes to the summer project, has a great summer, really grows in his faith, comes back. And sure enough, first game, you know, comes and they have demoted it. He didn't even, didn't play or anything like that. They had demoted him. And, uh, but you never heard anything from DeMario. He didn't complain. He didn't whine. He felt like this was God. Here, here's the, the point of all this. And, and eventually he goes on and play in the NFL. Now, the, the point of this is not that DeMario obeyed and therefore the Lord gave him an NFL career. Listen, DeMario was probably already on the road to, to that. But the, the point is this, is that by faith he obeyed God and he trusted his future to the Lord. DeMario had a lot to lose, but he knew that his relationship with Christ was, was so important. And rather than trusting God with his growth and stepping out in football, he stepped out into his growth and trusted the Lord with his future. And it's a decision that as you talk to him today, he never regretted. So it's better to go into the unknown trusting God than to go into the known without trusting God. God. Here's a second application. God's presence and promises are always better than what disobedience promises. And listen, the the, the path to disobedience always, disobedience has its own promises. As a matter of fact, disobedience sometimes, uh, the promises that disobedience me actually feels more real at times. Uh, But we know that they're deceitful. On the other hand, the path of obedience, which which leads to, to trusting in God's promises in his presence is something that we can actually build our life on. But often we find ourselves when we're rolling into really hard times, when we're rolling into challenging circumstances, we begin to question, we get in this mode of wondering, and we're looking back over here. We're listening to the whispers of the promises of disobedience. And we're hearing also the whispers of God's promises and presence over here. And we, and we go back and forth. I'll, I'll share a story to illustrate this. Uh, years ago, actually, when I was 17, it was my senior year in high school, I'm embarrassed to say, several of my friends, uh, we go out to, I, I grew up in a small town in Alabama on the Alabama River. So I spent a lot of my time on the Alabama River. And uh, it's not as big as the Mississippi River, but nevertheless, it's a big, murky, snaky, uh, loggy river. And um, so we spent a lot of time. And we had one, one particular place on the river that we called affectionately Little Miami because we were real proud of it. It had a big sandbar there on the river. And it was in the bend of the river. And, and it was the widest point in the river, in the Alabama River right there. And so one day there's a bunch of us out there my senior year. And and, uh, and I come up with the uh, crazy idea. It's like, so, hey, what if we swim across the river? You know, there's another sandbar all the way on the other side of the river. It's like, hey, why don't we jump in and, and swim? And here's the crazy thing. I mean, if that wasn't crazy enough or stupid enough, um, both of the guys I asked to do it were offensive linemen for our high school football team. Big guys, out of shape, love to eat, terrible swimmers. So I jump in the water with those guys. We start swimming across the river. We get about halfway across. Not, you know, not really thinking through the fact that the river, you know, the stream of the river is going to start bringing us down river and what was our original objective now is way over here and we're trying to figure out what to do. But we get halfway across and one of my buddies starts to panic. He starts to hyperventilate out there in the middle of the river and we still probably have seven or 800 yards to go. And, and he starts looking back, and he's trying to figure out if he, if he wants to go back. And he's saying, I can't make it. I can't do this. And, and I'm thinking to myself, it's like I can't get near him. He's going to drown me. And uh, so we start talking, and eventually we make it to the other side. We just lay out on the, the beach there. And, and, uh, but as I've thought about this, this is the picture often that we run into in the Christian life. Listen, we're marching down the, the, the road of, of God's will And we have clear direction, but then the circumstances start to get hard. And the the circumstances and the situations around us become really challenging. And all of a sudden, we stop in the middle, and we begin to look back, and we begin to contemplate, is following God what I really want to do, or do I want to listen to the promises of disobedient? And all the while, you're floating away from the mark. It's so dangerous when we get like this, to, to pay attention to the whispers of the promises of disobedience. Listen, because God's presence and promises were enough, Abraham needed very little from this world. That's the second point. You find that in verse 9. The obvious expectation, you know, in a sense, Abraham had, had landed in the promised land. He was there in the, pro- the, the area that he was to inherit As a promise, he had arrived. And and the obvious thing would be that he would take possession of the land, that he would settle down, that he'd build a house, that he'd send out roots, that he'd build his business. But he does just the opposite. It says here in the passage that he continues to live in a tent. Now, one of the things you got to know about Abraham is Abraham was a very wealthy man. He could have afforded land. He could have afforded a house. And even during this time, only nomads really traveled around in tent. But Abraham, moving to the land of promise, continued to live in a tent. Why in the world would he live in a tent? Well, the answer is in verse 10. He was looking for something. He was looking forward to a heavenly city. And dwelling in tents to Abraham served as a symbol of his commitment not to settle in the earthly cities of the Canaanites, but to seek the more permanent city built by God. There was something greater on his horizon. This was not his home, and he was not going to live for the things that are temporal and transient. This was a physical expression of a sojourner's heart. And that's exactly what the Bible calls us. We're pilgrims in this life. His citizenship was in heaven. He was a stranger to this world, and he was just passing through. And the scriptures here, they're not prescribing to us that we should all go and sell our houses and, and live in tents. This is not some kind of a self-deprivation that, that gives us a sense of a false sense of spirituality or or anything like that but it is describing something very distinct about the relationship that Abraham had with the Lord Abraham was was content in his relationship he was very wealthy but he was content in his relationship with the Lord he was not covetous you remember the situation when him and Lot you know, we're having strife. You know, this is just a small indicator. You remember how Abraham responded? I mean, Abraham is the senior. He has the right to choose whatever land he wants to. God made the promise to him, but what does he do? He tells Lot, you choose whatever land you want to. And and, and Lot chose the best. He chose the, the, the valley, the Jordan Valley there. And Abraham said, I'll go in the opposite direction. It's a real picture of how. Abraham was really content. He was content. He was grateful with the blessings of the Lord, but he loved God even more than he loved his blessings. You know, it's interesting. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, has this chapter that really describes this well. It's called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And, And here's what he says here about Abraham. He said, Abraham was a very wealthy man, owning flocks, camels, herds, and goods of every sort. He had a family, servants, he had everything. But listen to this, he possessed nothing. So while he owned so many things, he possessed nothing in his heart. In other words, maybe a better way to say it is that while he owned so much and was very wealthy, nothing possessed him except the Lord. He was very content. Tozer goes on to say, therein is Abraham's spiritual secret. There was a blessedness that Abraham had found in the Lord. The Lord was his portion, his satisfaction, his contentment. Abraham's greatest treasure was inward and eternal. Abraham resonated with what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The biggest challenge often that we deal with in trying to run this marathon we call the Christian life is that our hearts are weighed down with being in love with the things of this earth. And it's a challenge for us. You know, years ago, um, I entered a triathlon. Now, I would fall way short of saying that I'm a triathlete. I did it one time. I actually did it because uh, one of my financial supporters when I was working with Campus Outreach wanted me to do it. And it's like, how do you turn down a guy who's been supporting you for years? So I was like, yeah, I'll do the triathlon, having no idea what I was getting myself into. I hadn't been training, I hadn't been preparing or anything like that. So I went out and you know, a triathlon, you gotta, you gotta swim. At first I think we swam for a half mile, then you bike for 18 miles and then you run for four miles. Um, I apparently missed that memo. So I go out that morning. It's like, I'm going to borrow somebody's bicycle. I don't have a bicycle. So I borrowed a 10 speed. And it was one of these old 1970 type things with the, you know, the circular handles and it had electrical tape all over it and, and uh, set out and we got there to the, uh, to the place that they, and there must've been 300 people at this triathlon. It starts off with the swim. We're all down on the beach, getting ready to dive in. And I'm like, man, this is serious. I'm, you know, I need to focus on what I'm doing here. I'm about to jump into the water and swim for a half mile, and and um, and while I was doing it, my kids are you know walking down. And I'm surrounded by 250 people, and uh, you know we're all ready to jump into the same little area of water. My kids, are, like, hey dad, you know when we get finished with this, can we go get a burger or an ice cream? And that kind of, it's like hey kids. I'm I'm trying to focus here. I'm trying to concentrate. In the meantime, there were several people that came up to me. I had, I had worn my big old baggy swim trunks that I was comfortable in wearing. Never been to anything. Probably had five people come up to me. It's like, are you not uncomfortable? You know, are you not concerned about the water drag that you're going to have wearing those? Like, no, I'm concerned about other things. I think I'll just keep my own, my, my own trunks here. And, uh, but everybody else was wearing really skimpy bathing suits and, uh, you know, uh, wet suits and that kind of thing. They were professionals jumped in the water. I literally thought I was going to die. As a matter of fact, it was so funny when I'm coming out. The, I mean, you know, in, in these things, everybody had already separated from me by the time I got to shore. And when I got to shore, I was just crawling into shore. My kids, we got them on video. They're, like, they're, they're the only ones left. They're like, go daddy. You're doing such a good job. Keep going dad. And, and uh, so then I pull out, I put my shoes on and I jump on my bike. And I get about halfway uh, into the first mile and it's all hills for the first three or four miles. I can't get the bike out of seventh gear. I'm literally dying. I finally finish. The 18 miles, I get it back, and both tires are dry-rotted. They're both flat as a doornail. And, uh, and then I'm starting my four-mile run. I finally crossed the finish line. And I was like, you know, where is everybody in <laughs> Joanne, Joanne and Price? She's like, well, everybody else has already gone home. <laughs> they got here earlier. But I tell you what, I've got good news. You placed. Really, I placed? I said said, yeah, you were inside the top 10, but it was the 70 and above division. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, I'll settle for that. That's a funny story just to get to the point here that, that literally I entered this waste being weighed down by big shorts, big trunks, no preparation, a bike that didn't work. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we enter it the same way. We're trying to live the Christian life by faith, but at the same time, we're holding down, we're holding on to so many earthly things that are actually maybe gifts of God Abraham reminds us as we, or the writer of Hebrews reminds us as we get to the beginning of chapter 12, you remember how he summarizes this. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's referring back to all these great heroes of the faith, Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and all these, you know, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses around us, um, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin Which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Which brings us to the third point here in the closing. I'll close with this. We're running out of time. Is that a life of faith anticipates the fulfillment of God's eternal promise? In verse 10, we see that there. What is it that kept Abraham going? He was looking for a heavenly city. Abraham was not just looking forward to inheriting the land of Canaan. He was looking beyond Canaan to what it foreshadowed. The city of heaven coming down to earth, just as John describes in Revelation, the new Jerusalem, a place where there's perfect peace. There's unfading joy. There's no sadness. There's no disappointment. There's everlasting praise. There's indescribable beauty and God's majesty Reigns everywhere. This is the substance and the motivation behind his faith and his obedience. This would be his inheritance. And and even though he wasn't going to get the fulfillment or the full dose of God fulfilling his promises here on this earth, he knew that it was ahead of him. And this is what motivated, this faith enabled Abraham to see eternity and to be content until the promise of God was answered. He was content as a sojourner. You know, as we think about heaven, you know, one of the things that, that we're reminded of is in this passage is that we're to be heavenly minded. We are to live the Christian life being preoccupied with heaven. And, and, and it's critical that we do so. This is critical to our discipleship. It's critical to our perseverance. It's critical for our our marriages to work properly. It's critical if we're ever gonna be effective in building out ministry in our city, having this heavenly mindset and being preoccupied with heaven is absolutely critical. And one of the most important things that we need to remember is that heaven is where Christ is. Christ is enthroned, he's glorious, reminded of his majesty, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's ruling over the earth. To be heavenly minded is to long for Jesus Christ to be in his presence. As a matter of fact, in closing, I'll I'll close with this last story. You know, Jesus had an amazing discipleship program. He was the master of discipleship, obviously, and he spent three years with those disciples. But when he started to get them to to the end and he knew in John 13, he actually says that he knew that his time was for him to go back to the Father and they're in the upper room, he washes his disciples' feet, tells them to wash others' feet. But he also you know, brings up the fact that someone here is going to betray me. And, uh, and the, the bottom line as they move out of this into chapter 4, the disciples are troubled. And as Jesus is preparing these disciples for the long journey ahead of them to be able to, to, to meet the challenges of faith that lie before them, here's what he says to them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You see what he's doing here? The very things that we've been talking about this morning are the very things that Jesus uses to prepare them for the long journey ahead of them. Look at what he says there. First of all, he calls to them, he, he calls them to believe in God, in Jesus Christ. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. But secondly, he, he gives them a promise. In verse 2, he says, in my father's house are many, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have I told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's saying that, look, in my father's house, who owns a mansion He's got many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place. It's going to be wonderful. But then at the very core of this promise that he gives them, guess who's who's right in the center of this promise? It's Jesus Christ. What we really get is the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. He says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Man, that's one of the most comforting things uh, and life-preserving things that we could possibly imagine. The center of the promise is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that we find here to live lives of faith. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, help us in our hearts to overcome the struggles we have, and and that by faith we we would be able to say with Abraham that your presence, Lord, and that your promises are enough. In Jesus' name, amen.